Jonah 3, 1 through 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his home, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Whitney. We are, uh, if you're visiting with us or... um, haven't been around. I haven't had the chance to meet you yet. My name's Ben. I'm glad to have you with us. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. And um, hopefully everyone has stayed warm and uh, gotten your electricity and internet back in service. I know the last two weeks for me uh, have been like my the peak of like middle-aged manness for me. You know, I got like a generator and figured out how to hook it up to my furnace and felt very accomplished. Um, and then the last couple, last week, you know, it's, it's, it's my neighborhood has been descended upon by all these tree crews and, and roofing companies. And, and this has given me the perfect opportunity to do the middle-aged sport of uh, neighbor watching. It's kind of like people watching, but you're watching like, what are they doing to their house? Like, what work are they getting done to their house? You know, you're like, is that... Are those architectural shingles that they're putting up there? That, that looks pretty good. Or you see the tree company and you're trying to gauge by the size of the lift or, or the crane. Like, wait, what, which tree are they taking down? Because somehow in my brain I think, oh, the, the work that these people are doing to their house, like somehow that benefits me or that, uh, that affects me or that changes the way that I take care of my own house. I know this is a very like middle-aged man illustration for those of you who are younger. I'm sorry. But I do think it's important because it's an interesting question when we come to a text like this that's really, really old, 3,000 years almost old, uh, a story that happened in this completely other part of the world and in in a situation that we cannot understand. And yet the story of Jonah, if you've been with us over the last several weeks, is a story in which we get to to peek over the fence, if you would, of, of time and space and see what is the work that God is doing in this city, Nineveh. It's a very different city than the one that we live in, and it's a very different moment in time in history But there's something about looking at what God is doing, looking at the work that he is doing in that time and place that can help us understand what he's doing in our time and place. And so I invite you here this this morning as we take a look at this to 
to look over the fence and to see this neighbor city of Nineveh from uh, the seventh century, the eighth century BC, um, and and what is it that God is doing specifically? What is the the work that God is doing? Because if like the the tree that our neighbor takes down has some impact on the way we go about our life, how much more does the the story of what the God of the universe does in this city affect us? So pretty simple. We want to do. I just want to take a t- look at two different things. One is. Uh, when we look over the fence of what God is doing in the world, what is, what is the work? What is it that, that characterizes his engagement with the city of Nineveh? And then the second question is kind of our response. How is it that when we see what he's doing there in Nineveh, how does that change how we perceive or think about God's work in our life? So first I want to take a look at just what is God's plan here in the city of Nineveh. Obviously, we see this, this great uh, moment of repentance, right? These people change in some drastic and, and significant ways, right? It says all this weird stuff about sackcloth and ashes and, and edicts from the king. But what is it that, G, what is it that God is, is, is trying to work at in this story? And the first thing, if, if you're trying to answer that question, is you have to look at where does it end, right? What is it that, what is the problem that God is, is trying to solve? And you remember right from the beginning um, of the book, in ver- chapter 1, verse 2, God says to Jonah, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come in front of me. At the time, Matt uh, mentioned to us this quote that, that was trying to help us in, in our day and age picture what it is that this nation of Assyria and, and its capital city, Nineveh, was like in the world. And one, one commentator says, it, it's like if you took the brutality and the violence of, uh, of ISIS and you matched it with this uh, superpower uh, Global, uh, the global military might of the United States, right? And you bred those things together, you would have an unparalleled opportunity for violence and evil and destruction in God's world. And in fact, that's exactly what God sees. Because when we're looking at what is God after when he comes to Nineveh, we see uh, what is the, the linchpin. God says, when God saw what they did. Well, what did they do? Look at the words of the king. He says, um, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Sorry, I lost my place. The violence. God, when he looks at the nation state of, of uh, the nation of, of Assyria, looks at the city of Nineveh, what he sees is a city in which it is not operating according to the plan that he has for the human race. What he sees is a city where violence and strength rule, and those who are poor and those who are, are weak, those who are of the wrong class or the wrong gender or the wrong nationality are pushed and beaten and afflicted at every turn. He sees a, a, a world that is filled with bloodshed, lies, and plunder, to quote another Old Testament prophet when he looked at this city. And God says, that 
has to come to an end. And so when we're looking at the fence, we're saying, what, God, what are you doing? What is the work that you're doing over there? The first thing we say is his goal, his, his engagement with Nineveh seems to be based at least partly on the ending of the violence, the protection of the weak. And so God, through his prophet Jonah, inserts himself right in the middle of between the, uh, the bully and his accused. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you watch this, but I'll, I'll try and back off a few degrees and tell you a story of my sixth grade basketball team. I always try to pick highly relevant uh, illustrations such as this, highly relatable, right? Um, unless if you're in sixth grade, in which this may be very relatable to you. My sixth grade basketball team, right? Sixth grade is, is kind of a, is, is an interesting time, right? It's, it's a time when, when kids are, are turning into teenagers, when they're turning from their, uh, their, their childlike bodies into more grown-up-like bodies, right? And so when you have a, a team, you end up with these weird juxtapositions, right? So I'll, I'll just tell you, on my team, I had uh, this, this one gentleman, we'll call him Bobby, and Bobby uh, was not a gentleman. He was, uh, he was five foot tall, a little soft around the edges, right? Hadn't quite lost his childhood physique yet. But in his mind, he thought he was a pretty big deal. And so he would talk. He was, you know, five foot, uh, you know, five foot kid with uh, kind of rounded edges. But he talked as if he was like 6'5", 250, right? And he talked a big game. But then there was this other guy on my team whose name was Tommy, and Tommy was one of those kids who like had like back muscles and a mustache in the sixth grade, okay? And these two hated each other. And every day, every practice, every game, they'd be quipping at each other. They'd be, they'd be arguing with each other. And they all came to a head one day after practice. We're in the, in the locker room uh, by ourselves, just the, the kids, and Bobby starts running his mouth. I remember him standing up on the bench, pointing his finger, yelling, and, and, and having his way. And then Tommy got up, and he stretched to his full height, and he stuck out his chest, and he started walking towards Bobby. And in that moment, I saw Bobby's face go from anger to abject terror, right? And as a, you know... Uh, proto-preacher, I immediately did the natural work of just starting to write Bobby's eulogy, right? This is not going to end well. The, the size difference, the power difference, that, that this was a, a, a truly frightful moment. But in that moment, I had another friend whose name was Ryan, and who was not nearly as big as, as Tommy, but not quite as small as Bobby, who stands up and, and he puts himself in between the two of them as Tommy is coming towards him, fist clenched, ready to fight. And Ryan goes, stop, turn around, just turn around, man, just turn around, stop what you're doing. You've seen this, right? You've seen somebody try to intervene and, 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 and say the message. But in that moment, the tension was so high that it was pretty clear Ryan was saying, look, if, if you need to either turn around or I'm going to try my hardest to turn you around, right? If you are going to keep coming at me, if you're going to keep coming at Bobby, I'm sorry, 
then I, you're going to have to fight me too. His message, as pitiful as it was in that moment, was turn. Turn from this path of, 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 of a fight, right? Or be turned around. And in much the same way, we see God, whose desire is for justice to come to the city of Nineveh, sends somebody even smaller and punier than Ryan into the midst. He sends Jonah to go to the nation of Assyria, to the strongest and greatest military might of of the world at that time, to say, you've got to stop the violence. You've got to end the, the discord. You need to turn from your violence or you will be turned around by God. See, it's probably the shortest sermon in the Bible here. Verse 4, Jonah's sermon says, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now that sounds uh, like a pretty serious message because it is. And maybe it sounds like the kind of, of judgment and strong arming that you have, have been wounded by and, and, and have come to expect from the God of the Bible. In fact, maybe that's the reason that has always kept you at bay. But one of the things that's interesting as we look at this text is that when God sends Jonah into that midst, What he's not doing is relishing in judgment, but what he is doing is he is offering them the chance of repentance. He's inviting them to repentance. Why do you say that? Well, why does God even speak at all? Why does he say in 40 days? Why doesn't he say, you screwed up, judgment is coming, your city is going to be wiped off the face of the earth? He says, yet in 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown because he is saying, there is time for you to turn. There is time for you to stop. There is time for you to relent of the evil that you have planned against these people. Another prophet uh, of God would, would say it this way. When God declares judgment upon a people, what is it that God is trying to do in the midst? What is his means of doing that. This is what Jeremiah says. If at any time, says the Lord, I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. If any time I, I declare that judgment is coming for a city, here's what the, the implied notion is. That if that nation concerning which I've spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I have intended to do it. You see, we hear that sermon, and we hear the sermon, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And we go, oh, that's harsh, that's mean, that's cruel. And indeed, God meant what he said. He will have peace on his earth, and if necessary, he will use judgment to stop the violence in this midst. But his desire, the heartbeat of God when he sends his prophet Jonah into their midst is that they would not require judgment, but that they would repent, that they would turn so they don't have to be turned. And so we see this strange goal of justice being met by this strange means, the word of God being preached to the people. And we see, how does that work in real life? 
How does that work in real life? If that's what God's plan is, is to bring the justice and the, the justice of God's kingdom through the preaching of his word, how does that work? Because we're looking on the other side, from the other side of the fence. This last week, uh, one of the people neighbor watching uh, episodes I got to have was uh, a neighbor was, had this tree crew coming out and um, to, to take down this just gargantuan limb that was hanging over their neighbor's house after the storm. And they've got this, this uh, you know, this, lit, this bucket that's like not probably close enough to the tree. And, and they got this guy like leaning out of his bucket trying to cut this limb with a pole saw. And down below, they have these guys holding the ropes, right? They're supposed to control how this gargantuan tree limb is supposed to fall. And I'm standing there with, you know, my posse of middle-aged neighborhood men, right, watching this, uh, uh, this befall. And you look down at the ground, and you see this beautiful gazebo and this little, like, glass greenhouse sort of thing that they have in their backyard. And you're going... I don't, I don't think this is going to end well, right? And they cut the limb loose, and the guys holding the rope are, like, getting pulled forward, and they, they can't control this rope, and, and someone else from the tree crew has to run, and there's three guys trying to pull on this rope to drop this limb in the right way, and you go, how could this possibly navigate disaster? How does this end well? And I think if we look at our lives soberly, when we are watching over the fence of the work that's happening uh, by God, the work God is doing in the nation of, is, of Nineveh, we're going, God, uh, and we don't say this out loud, but like, God, I, I don't think that works that way. Right? Either you think, uh, God, I don't think that, that preaching about judgment is going to help bring about the end of violence. I don't think talking about your desire for a flourishing humanity is going to lead to the kind of, of real-life, boots-on-the-ground change that will make life better for the poor and the vulnerable. Or we look across the fence and we go, uh, uh, okay, all this, all this talk about social reform and change, it, it, it makes me uneasy. What's most important is that we just focus on our job of, of, of preaching the word and let the chips fall where they weigh, let, let judgment fall where it needs to come. There's only so much we can do. But when God shows us the work he's doing in Nineveh, he intends to show us that maybe there's something in us that's, that, that's a little out of place. And so I want to take a minute and just look at those two different dispositions that, that, that I think exist in the church and I think probably exist in your life as they do in mine. Now, first of those is, is that there is an a, a option in our church, the way that we think about Christianity, the way that we think about God's work in the world where we think there can be the, the word of God going out, but not the, the justice and the peace that God promises to bring. We think we can separate those two and that, that really our job is, is just, to, to, uh, just to, to proclaim the word of God, right? To, to soak it up, to learn it, to, to become better and, and know more things about God. 
But all that stuff uh, uh, about taking care of the poor, all that stuff about uh, uh, living in a, a just society, all that stuff about making sure that people have equal treatment under the law, that's, that's all out of our hands. That's too far. Indeed, if you're not a, a churched person, right, if you're not a person who hangs around the church a lot, you may feel you, you probably could help us see that blind spot even more. You go, yeah, I hear churches and Christians talking about all of these things, but where's the proof? Where's the transformation happening in the world? And of course, none of us say, oh, we just want God's words. We don't want the God's kingdom. We don't say that. But there are signs that happen, crop up in the way that we think, in the way that we act, that, that might tell us and might be what we're working on. Well, the first is just that when I say, what is God's work in the world? What is God's mission in the world? Many of us, if not most of us, would focus on internal transformation, right? Internal uh, uh, affection towards God, that we, that we ought to, uh, you know, look at God and, and be closer to God, Right? We, we think about what is the God's work in the world, and we think of uh, here are the doctrinal affirmations that we ought to believe. But how many of us talk about a kingdom where peace, truth, and justice flow? How many of us look at the city of Nineveh and say, oh, this repentance was about the ending of the violence and the evil that is in their midst? Not many of us, but that's... That's what the author of Jonah tells us, right? When you start visiting churches or, 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 or assessing a, a church that we're a part of, right? It's very common for many of us to use this rubric of, am I being fed? Am, am, am I being equipped? Am I, am I learning all the right things? And a whole lot less of a rubric that says, is this community reflecting the beauty and the peace of God's kingdom. If we gravitate towards one and not towards them both, well, then we might be trying to have a word without justice. If when we see the enormity of the task and the depths of injustice and violence in our world and we just shrug our shoulders and say, what can we do? Rather than look at the injustices of the world and believe that God is about transforming them. If we say, what can I do? Rather than, won't he do it? then maybe we have a, a disordered view of what God is doing in the world. Because one thing that's very clear, I think, here in Jonah, but it's clear throughout all the scriptures, is that the, the proof that God's word has come into a community, the proof that God's word has, has found its home in the lives of people is when transformation occurs, when justice occurs. Jesus, when he says, are, are you sure that your kingdom has come? He says, look around. Have the blind received their sight? Do the lame walk? Do the, are the lepers cleansed? Do the deaf hear? Are the dead raised up? And have the poor been preached good news? Paul, when he says, uh, you know, for by grace you have been saved through faith, what does he say? He says, uh, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. James, of course, that we're talking about in, in our Bible studies has a lot to say about this. But quite simply, faith without works is dead. 
there's a notion that exists in the church, and it's manifested in a thousand different ways, more than we have time to talk about this morning. But, at the, but when, as we read of God's work in Nineveh, this haunting question comes to us. We can see that God sent his word to Nineveh so that the abused might be comforted and the outcasts might have a home. And we wonder, does the word we preach, does the word that we read, the word that we believe, does it have the same impact on our neighbors as it did for the poor and the marginalized and the slave in Nineveh? Because if our word has less impact on our neighbors, then maybe we've not understood the word correctly. But that's just one way that we tend to twist and distort or or minimize the work that God is doing. There's another and and equal and opposite way, and that is that we want to have some sense of, of justice, of change, of reform. But that talk about judgment, that that talk about God, that's all kind of superfluous. That's kind of all uh, 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 gravy on the top. You see, we, 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 we live in a time and a moment in our culture where that word justice, and even as I say that word justice, so many, so many of you are tensing up, right? Because you're like, what does he mean by that word? Because there's a, a, a hundred different justice theories out there and millions of causes that go by the name of justice, but not all are, are the kind of justice that God is talking about, right? We have people who, uh, who are championing uh, the justice of, of individual freedoms or individual rights, right? Be that pandemic or otherwise, right? We have people who are focused on that it's just if, if people are happy and if people are comfortable. We have people that, that define justice based upon class and power and privilege, And all those categories have some little piece of truth in the way that God talks about justice. But they're not biblical justice if they don't come from the word of God. See, there's a temptation in all of us to jump on the bandwagon, to feel like we are part of of the crowd, to to think that we are part of, of change in the world because... We can, we can jump on and, and latch on to these, these various views of justice, but justice for the Ninevites comes because it was spoken by God. See, the biggest difference between justice, whichever theory you want in the world today, and the justice that Jonah preached was Jonah's, Jonah's justice is based upon God himself. And so when we're wondering, is this the right thing for me to be working on? Is this the right cause? We have to look at ourselves and go, is this, this, this thing that I care about? Is this thing that I'm giving my life to? Is this activism that I'm supporting? Is it based on a cause that the scriptures teach? Or am I trying to use scriptures to justify my concern for uh, X, Y, or Z? Right? Are, we, are, are we basing our view of justice upon what God tells us is good and true and beautiful? Or are we basing it upon something that we like? I'll give you uh, the, a really innocuous example. Right? You are, as an American, you are drilled into it that right, you are endowed by the Creator with certain inalienable rights. Right? Life, liberty, Pursuit of happiness, right? Um, 
the Bible doesn't say those things. That sounds like that comes from the Bible, but those are not uh, those. Maybe you can make the cause for the the right to life. I'll give you that one. Okay. The second two. I don't think, at least you can show me later if it is, if I'm wrong. I don't think you're going to find those other things in Scripture, but yet we defend those things as if we were doing God's work, when what reality is is we're trying to cut God out of the world that he created. So our gospel, our, our justice we try to pursue and leave aside the, the preaching uh, has one problem, but it has another as well. And there is so many of us get caught up in justice works, and we have to ask the question, is there an end? Not just was it based upon what God has said, but is there an end to, to, to this work of justice? That is to say, is there, is there a redemption possible? Because there's a lot of people in our world, and there's a lot of people in this room and there might be one person preaching who likes to think about justice in a gotcha sort of way, right? That those people would, would get a taste of their medicine, that those people would, uh, would be changed and, ref- and, and, and be excluded from society. We're really good at, at banning books or ostracizing people. We're really good at stripping people of, of their authority and their power when they cross whichever justice line, fence post we set up. But then what? Where do we go from there? Where, where does that person go? Where do you go if you're the person who has crossed the boundary? See, biblical justice The biblical justice that Jonah brought to Nineveh always has a way out because the biblical justice is based upon the idea that there is repentance. There, in in secular uh, human theories of justice, there is no redemption. There is no true repentance. There is only judgment. But with God, with God, there is always Repentance. There is always the one who would turn and hear his people. And that's kind of the point. The point of the whole story, as we look over the fence post at what God is doing in the world, when we look over the fence post to say, what is God doing in Nineveh, we realize that what God is doing in Nineveh is what he is doing on our side of the fence, too. As he is looking at people like you and I, people who are, are prone to try and steal some of God's words and, and not God's, the life that God has for us. Or we're trying to, to, to recreate God's justice and truth, but leave him out of it. And he says, I have come so that you could repent. See, Jonah went to Nineveh so that they could know repentance was possible. But the person who wrote these words didn't write it to the people in Nineveh. He wrote it to the people who lived in Israel. He wrote it to God's people because he knew that God's people had the same problems that the Ninevites had. A same temptation to marginalize and disregard the poor and the same temptation to, to, to find some other God or some other explanation to base their justice off of. And what the author of Jonah wanted us to see is that we can be like the Ninevites. We have the opportunity to repent. 
So the deal that God offered the Ninevites is the same deal he offers to us. God told the Ninevites, turn from your evil, your destruction, or I will bring your evil and your destruction down upon your head. Right? That is the premise. If, if you don't turn I from your evil, I will give you your evil on you in judgment. And the Israelites were amazed at this. How patient, right? Uh, Jonah in the next chapter says, For I knew you were a gracious God, a merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. And indeed, it is marvelous to see God's patience. But the story gets even better than that. The story is even more remarkable than that because in hindsight, we can see that what God was offering the people of Nineveh was not just a way to delay his wrath. What he was offering the people of Nineveh was not just a a way to become better people or or a way to improve themselves. What he was offering is that he was saying, I will take your evil upon my head. God was able to be patient with the Ninevites and he was able to be patient with the Israelites because he was bringing his judgment and his destruction upon himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because the story of the Bible tells us that God did not stay above, he did not just send prophets, but that In the finality of time, in the fullness of time, he sent his son, his son to be born of a woman and to live life on our earth. And keeping the righteous requirements of the law, he would have the judgment that we have brought, the evil that we have brought into the world poured upon his head at the cross. Because it is in him that we can have freedom from our evil, and it is in him that we can have freedom from the destruction that we have brought. And even as I'm preaching here this morning, we have the opportunity to repent, to repent perhaps for some of us from the way that we twist and abuse God's word to make it internal and private when God meant it to be external and and explosive in his world of kindness and justice and mercy. And some of us need to repent uh, of the ways that we have grappled on to, to justice theories and justice causes that have nothing to do with the scriptures because they make us feel better or make us feel justified. And some of you are as mixed up and confused and broken as me, and you have to repent for both of them. But because of the one who hung upon the tree, we can turn. We can repent and find true freedom. And we can find true justice because there is one who has taken our evil and who has taken our destruction upon himself. That is our invitation this morning and every morning. Pray with me. God, we are a people who need, who need your truth and your work in our life. We are a people who need your forgiveness, and we are a people who need to be turned around because we get everything backwards and sideways and all over the place. But God, you sent your prophet to proclaim the good news that repentance is possible, that your kingdom is coming so that we could hear it as well. God, give us ears to hear 
and hearts transformed by your goodness. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.